Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Cause deep time will blow your mind. How you doing? Oh, I'm all right. You know, life uh, speeds up, slows down, and uh, it's uh, it's been kind of a wacky couple of days. But hey, Dave, it's winter is here. The rain has stopped. There's snow on the ground, and it's in the 20s, and they're going to get down into the teens this week. And there's little balls of sun all all week long, so I'm happy. Does it, like, snow every year in Ketchikan, like, just for, like, a week? It's not like you have a full-on Chicago winter. Right. You know, that's what most people don't realize. And I say Alaska, they, just, they imagine igloos and, you know, eternal darkness and all that. <laughs> and and uh, no, Southeast Alaska. Igloos, the temporary yeah. Inuit right. winter hunting lodge. And that's a right. thousand miles or more from me. And uh, I'm in... Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the banana belt of Alaska, and so actually it's a big deal if it, if it snows here in uh, in Alaska. So I'm betting it is... The banana belt. Yeah. Wait a minute. How many thousand miles away is the nearest banana belt? All right. Growing? Well, it's, it's a turn of, it's a turn anyway, of phrase. It's a, it's it a is. Joke. You know what? It's a temperate a temperate rainforest is what Ketchikan is. And indeed, is. it rains in that rainforest. Yeah. Well, um, I'm not too sure when this episode will uh, be released to the world, but uh, tonight we are getting your atmospheric river. Really? The pluvial event. Yeah, it starts tonight. And they're saying it's going to be record rain and record flooding events. Really? And, well, it's sorely needed in California. We have been in a drought. We literally had one rain this entire season. That's it. It's been dry the entire winter, and normally we've had, you know, four or five rains events to date, That's... and so this will be the second rain event in the entire wow. winter. That You know, I just think about California, you guys are always going through these extremes, and yeah, so, I mean, you guys are, uh, yeah, it's raining, uh, when it rains, it yeah. really rains, and you got mudslides. Are you on a hillside? Are you in danger of sliding? No, no, I'm no, I'm I'm near the mudslide places, but uh, no, it won't affect my home. Is there hills above you that could slide down and bury poor Dave? There are hills near me, but no, no, I'm not in any danger of flooding or mudslides. That's uh, too bad you won't make goodness. a good fossil then. You'll get eroded away. No, but you know what? I do want to jump in the La Brea tar pits, possibly, at the last day of my life so that I become a fossil. There's some amazing news. Would you, you have to tell me some amazing news about our friend, the Tyrannosaurus Rex? Well, it's not Rex. Tyrannosaurus Rex, my friend. That's why I was trying to actually what? telegraphing this to you before the episode. It's uh, a, a Tyrannosaurid, if you will, a Tyrannosaur in the... In the family, not in the genus, in the family. Okay, wait, wait. What's the difference between a Tyrannosaurus and a Tyrannosaurid? It's the family, okay? Okay, Tyrannosaurus. Family, genus, species. That... Remember this whole thing? Yeah, family, genus, yeah. species. The genus is Tyrannosaurus. We have Tyrannosaurus What's the family? The family are Theropodia? The... Well, no. I, this is where we need the scientists quickly to consult it, but the, the, <laughs> the Tyrannosaur family. 
So okay. before there was Tyrannosaurus rex, there was Despletosaurus and there was Albertosaurus. They're older. Right. 80 million years-ish to 100 million years And what about Allosaurus? Where did he show that's up? That's Jurassic. Was... We're way, that's way, oh, that's back. way long And that's three ago. fingers. So these are Tyrannosaurs that have right. two fingers. And right. uh, so they found... The Jurassic Park predators, the the last ones to exist to the, before the comet hit. Right. Right. But... They only live for about three or three to five million years before the comet hit, right? Well, Tyrannosaurus very... Rex was at the very end, right, 66. Right. But these are slightly before that. But they have found an embryonic Tyrannosaur, and this is one of the things. Nobody's actually found the eggs yet, and they estimate the eggs are like 18 inches long. Imagine that. But uh, they've got uh, embryonic. They know they're very, very juvenile, fresh out of the eggs, Um Little well, bits. I, wait a minute. I I think I read this article. That I thought they did find eggs, or were they able to surmise the size of the eggs based on the embryo? That's that's ah. It. There's yeah. no egg. No there's egg. No egg. So right. someone out there, you know, looking in the Hell Creek formation, might find the actual Tyrannosaurus egg, which, which to date is uh, the Holy Grail. One of the Holy Grail. Tyrannosaurus. Right. Hey. So this is what blew me away when I read this article. They they identified it by just little tiny structures in the jaw. Right, little tiny. I think these are just like. Is it is it a complete? It's not a complete skeleton. No, is it? no, 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 no. I think these are two different like bits, um, skull bits and uh, leg bones and that kind of thing. And they know. That's so cool. Yeah. That's so, now speaking of legs and bones, you uh, are drawing a thalatosaur, which looks like the the the. I, I don't know. I think I saw it on your Facebook page. I posted on Instagram, by the way. That's where I put it on Instagram, yeah. right? Well, what's your Instagram handle again? Ray Troll. Ray Troll, and it's these drawings. It's like you're struggling to make sense of this <laughs> skull, but it looks like a flamingo with a really weird bent. It's got a. It's like a a predator with teeth. Then then at the end it bends down. It's got Is this crazy weird Jimmy Durante Curve. sort of nose. Yeah. You know, kind of. Hooked <laughs> Jimmy to, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not revealing my boomer origins here, but it's really. I, I think of it as more like a sockeye salmon. You know, like this. The, but wait, yeah, the it's got this huge thing. But yeah, this is a, it's a Oregon thalatosaur, uh, and I've been asked to draw this beast, which is a marine. It's a marine reptile. Marine reptile from the Triassic. It's a, one of those marine reptiles that that lineage died out before. But how do you know that's not rock that pressure and time bent that top bit of the skull into that shape, and that's not the actual? Well, they found other thalatosaurs with this oh. the same oh. kind of distinct weird nose that bent over other right. uh, genera. And then they did up find multiple uh, members uh, in this one huge concretion that uh, found, was found in eastern Oregon. So the an animal is yet to be named. And I'm right. I have the privilege of uh Well, I love how you take it. just these bits of bone and you put skin and an eye and and like a snout. It's really cool. It's like you could this actually you could see the process. Yeah, well, that's what cool. I want to show is I I get these skulls um uh, drawings and or but actually what's cool, they sent me uh uh Gregory Carr is the fellow's name. Uh, it was his daughter who found this, and I know the scientist Pat Druckenmiller is working on this paper. Uh, but he sent me, Greg Carr sent me a 3D print of the skull, oh, which is so cool. cool. And it's got these huge eyes and, um, yeah, nice. a little sneak peek on my Instagram if you want to check it out. But I go cool. through this process. I went through that process with the saber-tooth salmon, spike-tooth right. salmon with helicoprion, 
I draw it. I draw it, and I think about right. it some more. I draw it again. So it's cool. Well, you you're awesome, man. You bring life to these bleached white bones. That's pretty cool. I try to bring them back to life. Okay, so listen, we're doing, um, we're back at the La Brea Tar Pits again, but we're diving, yeah, but we're diving into another another part of Pleistocene history. You said that well, sir, Pleistocene. I had to think about it. Did you hear, did you hear the delay? Actually, that was with our uh, another Pleistocene expert that we were talking to, but yeah, uh, we're going to go to the Pleistocene again, and uh, we're, shall we reveal the identity of this person? Yes, but just to, to reiterate, the Pleistocene starts 2.6 million years ago, and it ends 11,000 years ago at the end of the last glaciation. That is the age of the Pleistocene. So it's pretty recent compared to uh, the origin of whales and dinosaurs and the Cambrian and all that. It's very recent. I'm looking at the chart, Dave, and you got that right, man. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. it is very okay. recent, and just to think of it, you know, 10,000 years ago in your neighborhood, there were saber-toothed cats, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if it was 10,000. We're going to find out because okay. they could be all dead 10,000 years ago and alive 11,900 years ago. Who knows? Right, but in geologic time, that's like yesterday. So our guest, how do you know our guest? Well, I've never met our guest. I uh, know our... Emily Lindsay. Emily Lindsay. And, uh, Dr. 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 Emily, Emily Lindsay. Lindsay and... Um, I know her via Reagan Dunn, who was a previous That's guest. That's right, Reagan. Yeah, Reagan mentioned. Fantastic, and then also yeah. Luis Chiappe at the L.A. County Museum said that he had ah. hired Reagan and Lindsay. Well, Luis oversees the uh, L.A. County Natural History Museum and the La Brea Tar Pits. Right, they're associated. They're actually kind of right. the same museum, different grounds. But uh, Emily's in charge of the excavation there, and she's also oh, cool. into sloths, which I want to get oh. into. So. That's so cool. Do they tell bad jokes slowly? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's call her up. The punchline will be delivered soon. All right, let's call her up. Uh, you you do the, your magic, Dave. Hey, David Strassman. Meet Emily Lindsay, paleoecologist, assistant curator, and excavation site director at the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum. Emily, it is so great to meet you. It's wonderful to meet you too, Ray. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, that's my buddy Dave up there. <laughs> and, and you know of Ray's art, I'm sure. You've seen his. Uh, do they sell it at the gift shop? Very much so. Um, I, I don't know if we have any of it at our gift shop. I personally have purchased uh, some of Ray's <laughs> art. Oh, um, you have? Well, yeah, you. so you know, I was actually, and I've—I mean, I've known of your work for a long time, and I have the cruising the fossil coastlines book, and we've talked about bringing that to the museum at some point. Um, ah, yes, yes, yeah. A few, well, a couple time's of... running out on that, so you better hurry up. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll let those in charge know. Um, <laughs> no, well, I was looking a couple of years ago. I was looking for an image for a talk on. Uh, showing the land mammal ages, and I came across one that you did that included right. two new land mammal ages that a team I was on named, and I was like so tickled oh. that the um, Santa Rosean and uh, the Augustinian, San Augustinian land mammal ages had been incorporated into your art, and I was like, well, it must be real, you know, like that's like the ultimate sort of validation of our of our <laughs> paper <laughs> paper that it. we wrote was that it got incorporated <laughs> into some of your artworks. Uh, and... Well, you know, I I know we're diving right into science right now, but maybe for the edification of our listeners and for Dave Strassman, we were talking about 
uh, NALMA, the North American Land Mammal Ages, and Kirk Johnson, director of the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. What do you mean ages? He, you mean well, migrations? He asked, me, he asked me to do this because my geologic ages thing has been so popular. He said, you know, we need a NALMA. And Emily, can you explain to us what NALMA is? So a NALMA is a form of what we call biostratigraphy. So it's using the actual fossils that you find, and in this case, mammal fossils that you find in uh, at particular sites to define the age of the site. So instead of using, um, say, chronometric dating, where we're you know running radiocarbon dates or uh, some other sort of you mean uh, dating strata, you mean dirt and soil. Right. Instead, instead of just like dating, you know, getting actual chronological ages based on radioisotopes, you look at what the faunas are, specifically the mammal faunas that are in that particular locality, and you say, oh, this, you know, it has these certain, this certain combination of mammals, and therefore it belongs to this biostratigraphic age or land mammal Well, age. these ages are named so weird. There's uh, Bartonian, that's the Simpson one. I'm bored. Uh, there's Rupelian, Chatian, Aquitinian, right? Who names these ages of, uh, this is just the Cenozoic, by the way, the last 66 million years. Who names them and how do they come up with this? So they're named for the type locality. So the first locality oh. or the most important locality where you find this particular assemblage is used to define the age. So, for instance, the site that I work at, the uh, Rancho La Brea Tar Pits, has its own land mammal age. It's actually the most recent land mammal age before the Holocene, and it's the Rancho La Brean. And uh, that's Oh, that's defined... what it's called, Rancho La Breans? The Rancho La Brean uh -huh. land mammal age. And that age. ended 11,000 years ago. It ends at 11,000 years ago. And so what I was saying to Ray is a, a few years ago, I guess when I was finishing up my PhD or maybe starting my postdoc, a group of colleagues and I, we were like, well, it doesn't make sense. Like all land mammal ages are sort of defined by their beginning, but this is the only one that is sort of defined by an end. And then, <laughs> then why aren't there any land mammal ages after this one that ended 11,000 years ago? And so we said, okay, well, what would the defining taxa of any Holocene land mammal ages be. And we and we decided at first we were thinking we would just define like one for the Holocene, but we realized we should really there were the Holocene is two... what we're in now. We're in the Holocene. Right. Yeah. The so age of man. The, yeah. the 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 period after the extinction of most of the large mammals in North America and most right. of the other continents. And so we were thinking there were basically two major faunal overhauls in the last 11,000 years that we felt warranted having their own ages. And one uh, was defined by the arrival of humans. So it's the, you know, instead of saying it's, oh, it's the Rancho La Brand is defined by this extinction, the end of the Rancho La Brand is, is defined by the beginning of uh, what we call right. the Santa Rosean, which is defined for the first locality where we have, you know, radiocarbon dated human remains in North but America. That's Santa Rosa Island here in Southern California. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. right on the Channel oh, Islands. Cool. Right off of LA. I'm really close to there. I'm in Ojai, so I'm not far from Oh, well, uh, so you can see the, the Santa Rosa yeah. 
type locality. Yeah. Great. Now, um, are you a paleo nerd and, and why and how? How did you become a paleo nerd? You know, I guess I've always been kind of intrigued by this this deeper time aspect of the world that we're living in. So, you know, I wasn't always a paleontologist. And in, in, in fact, I fought for many years becoming a paleontologist because I think I had a sort of... Um, incomplete idea <laughs> i did i did i had i was like so many of my friends and colleagues were like well clearly you know i mean you love you love animals you love sort of deep time like why not paleontology and i i had this idea that all paleontologists did was you know describe new species of dinosaurs and it just seemed really uninteresting uh, to me um so oh. but i actually you know i mean i i studied ecology in college i worked as a marine ecologist for a bunch of years actually i i worked in antarctica i scuba dove Whoa. in uh in the atlantic for for many years after i graduated from college but i would always i had this like secret double life in archaeology and i would sneak off and work on archaeological digs periodically well you're you're a northwest kid aren't you or did you grow up in the northwest whereabouts uh seattle area or, or where I, I grew up in portland oregon okay yeah portlandia so from there you became you were a marine biologist for a while but what what made you turn what was that turning point in your life where you suddenly realized i guess i'm a paleontologist <laughs> Yeah, paleo ecologist. Well, you know, so starting in high school and sort of continuing through college, I would I would sneak off periodically and work on archaeological digs, but I never wanted <laughs> to become an archaeologist because you know culture is is so messy and you could I just felt like it's so makes it so hard to get answers to anything when you have to deal with this very complexicating factor of of humans. But um, after college, a couple years after college, I had the opportunity to work on an archaeological dig uh, down in Patagonia that it was in a cave and um, they had found uh, 10 or 11 human skeletons in this cave that were really old. They were like the oldest skeletons that had been found in that region. Um, and there were also in the cave remains of extinct large mammals, notably giant ground sloths, which, I mean, just wow. learning that there were such things as giant ground sloths was sort of compelling enough to make me want to become a paleontologist. But finding like these human remains and the same site in very like close stratigraphic layers with, you know, just thousands of um, these old dermal, dermal ossicles from these giant ground sloths was so compelling and, and got me thinking about this idea that you could wait, actually... Wait, what's an ossicle? Wait, wait, a what? Dermal <laughs> ossicle? Well, this is... I think oh! Dave and I were talking about this. Oh! This, this, this is the bony armor that ground sloths have on their back, right? Yeah, so they their skin... Yeah, so certain species of ground sloths have these small sort of pebble-like bones embedded very densely in their skin as a sort of armor. Most sloths don't have it. It's just, you know, this sort of particular group, these myelodontid sloths. And, you know, it, it makes sense because, you know, they share a, a common ancestor. They're in the same group as, as armadillos, but there's only one right. group of sloths that has this characteristic. So this was kind of a bony armor plate, kind of bony protection. So it's bony armor to protect them from predators, but you found these creatures, their bones in the cave with humans, and it was very apparent that the humans had been eating the sloths, right? Snacking on sloth not, burgers. Not necessarily. You know, we didn't find evidence that oh. humans had butchered the sloths. Someone didn't do their homework. Um, they could have. 
or they could have shown up, you know, just, I don't know, a hundred years after the last sloth lived in that cave. It's hard to say, but, but just having this, this situation sort of woke me up to the idea that you can ask these sorts of ecological questions that I found really compelling and that had sort of led me into kind of marine ecology in ecosystems that didn't exist anymore. And namely, sort of what were the different factors, causation and environmental causation, you know, same types of questions that we're asking, um, you know, in ecology and conservation biology and modern landscapes. But you can ask you know, what were the impacts of these factors in past landscapes as well? And I just found that incredibly compelling. And that was what finally convinced me that I wanted to, you know, go to graduate school in, in paleontology. Wow, cool. In in researching for this episode, I read a paper on um, lithic tools and sloth bones in the Pampas in Argentina. Mm-hmm. It infers that humans, well, th- that butchered them. I mean, it doesn't... When I looked at it, it wasn't like smoking gun proof, but there were cut marks on ribs. And what do you think about that? I mean, is that evidence that humans were living at the same time as the megafauna, as sloths, giant sloths? Yeah, I mean, and we have lots of radiometric evidence that in certain regions, humans were definitely living in those regions at the same time that these giant ground sloths and other megafauna were there. Um that particular site, uh, if it's the paper I'm thinking of, um, you know, I'm not an archaeologist. I explicitly stayed away from archaeology, but my <laughs> colleagues, um, the co-authors on the paper who are archaeologists, feel that this is pretty definitive proof that these are definitely marks that were made by humans using these sharp tools on the sloth bones. And, you know, it's it's as good as evidence well, as we have or that we're going to get, probably. Well, I know we got a lot of stuff to talk about, but... Uh... So if we're going to go deeper into the the topic of sloths, one thing that uh, I've been wondering about, you must be excited about, is the new pictographs that have been found in in Colombia that actually maybe show they're actually paintings by ancient humans in South America of it. Apparently, do you think it's a ground sloth in that one? In those images? It looks like one to me, and that is the coolest story I have seen all year. I was yeah. so excited when and that, that wall came goes out. for several miles of and there's pictographs, right? It's just absolutely incredible. I'm so excited about it. And I I mean, because we have so few representations in the Americas of these extinct animals. Um and yeah. we also have so little paleontological data from this time period from that region of South America just because uh you know, fossils don't preserve as well in the in the tropics uh, because of the heat and and the direct UV rays and the acidic rainforest soils and the right. fact that all of your outcrops get covered in plants immediately. And so we have so little data from there. And so to find this is so important on so many different levels. And I was just blown away by that discovery. No, I mean, so, it's so cool. So it actually shows a maybe a, the the mother sloth and a, and a baby, which is is really even cooler and and. Do you know of the Mapinguari? I do, yes. What? I know about the Mapinguari. Mapinguari. Do you think there's any cultural memory there? To, wait, wait, wait. The, what is this? What is well, this? Well, you've been to Brazil, man, you know? Yeah. It's one of the great uh, stories. There's uh, this great folklore stories about this large, hairy beast uh, that lives in the forest. Some descriptions say there's a big eye in the middle of the belly, but... Uh, but it's got big claws. Okay, and no, you get into Bigfoot territory here. Yeah, this is a hypothesis that the Bob Pinguari is a cultural memory of 
the giant ground sloths. And there actually have been some scientists who think maybe there's still one out there alive, but no. I don't know. No, I buy the cultural memory. That sounds plausible. But you've heard of it too, Emily, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm with I'm I'm with David. I think it's plausible that it's cultural memory. I wouldn't say likely necessarily, but plausible and um not plausible uh, that they are still today. alive Expedition. today. Well, let me tell you what I found. I found 150 kilometers south of Alice Springs in the red center of Australia camping in this wild place that we helicoptered in for a week. I found petroglyphs which are Picked in the stone before there was pigment, so it had to be twenty, thirty thousand years old. Of a stick figure and a diprotodon, which is the giant uh, wombat, the the large, huge wombat megafauna in Australia, and the scale was t uh, a little stick figure and this giant beast. You know, was that bad perspective? Was that coexistence? I think those are questions that are just so incredible to think about. Well, ground sloths were enormous, right? Some were, can you tell us, describe for our listeners what <laughs> ground sloths might, uh, what the, how big they got? And I'm really curious how fast they were because modern day sloths are slow motion. In fact, well, Dave, tell her about the story when we were in the yeah. Amazon, Ray. So we were actually in the Amazon back in 2009 and went uh, down the, went the Rio Negro and actually we went on a riverboat and every now and then it would stop because there was a sloth up in the tree and one of the guys in the boat would climb up, bring the sloth down, bothering the sloths, obviously, and, and hand them to uh, the touristas, as it were, uh, to hold... We were paleontological scientists, well, we, not touristas. Well, well okay. But uh, <laughs> I was taking a picture of Dave as he held the sloth, but you could see, and I wanted to, like, slow motion, the sloth is bringing the claws up to Dave's arm, and then as it slowly grabbed his arm, it began to dig in. So, and Dave screamed, and oh, uh, stop! I did not cried like <laughs> a baby. But, anyways, I'm just wondering: Do you think that can we assume that giant ground sloths were lethargic, and that word "slothful" applied to them? Well, it did well? move in slow motion, like in that uh, Pixar uh, cartoon. It literally moves like it's, you're watching slow motion. Modern day sloths. Yes, we have Dr. Yeah. Lindsay here, though, talking about ancient sloths. think they were particularly they weren't particularly speedy but they were not very very slow like the modern sloths today i mean these were you know very large animals um in some cases there are some species like the arimatherium and megatherium that got to be about the size of modern male african elephants which was very very wow. large um you know they wouldn't have been really fast in fact they walked very awkwardly they walk sort of on like the they've they have their feet like turned under so they're walking kind of on the sides of their feet um but certainly you know they weren't um they weren't the really kind of extremely slow creatures that their remaining relatives are today hmm. but their remaining relatives are there's still a number of species there's a three-toed a two-toed and how many genera are there today there's two genera 
which okay. are in two separate families. Um, and then right. there's uh, a couple of different species within at least one of those genera. Um, but they were incredibly diverse in the past. So you have, you know, in addition mm. to these really, really large forms, you actually you have dwarf giant sloths in the same way we got the mini mammoths over on the Channel Islands. The mammoths ended up on the islands and got small again. We had giant sloths and the Caribbean islands that got small again. Um, not as small as the modern tree sloths, but more sort of like dog-sized. There were sloths And that, why were they so successful? You know, um, it's a it's a good question. I mean, part of it is just kind of the weirdness of of South America. I mean, South America was isolated for like 60 million years. And so the animals that were there when it sort of separated from Africa and the rest of the Gondwanan continents were, uh, you know, what there was to evolve and take up all that ecological space after the Cretaceous extinctions. And so, yeah, I mean, you had sloths that evolved to have like semi uh, aquatic lifestyles, the marine giant sloths that you find right, on the coast right. of Peru. Um, you have the sloths with the armor in their skin. You have, uh, you know, just this range of sizes. You have uh, some that you know, were very robust and, um, you know, clearly would stand up on their hind legs. You have others that are more gracile and might have been, you know, uh, eating into ant and termite mounds. So just this sort of range of, uh, you know, ecological niche spaces that they were they able to diversify into. Yeah. yeah. And there weren't, wasn't much in the way of like large land carnivores at the time. So, um, mm. Until the uh, Great American Biotic Interchange, when when South America and North America united, and then you get this influx of you know bears and cats and dogs and stuff coming down, and so um, how long ago when when did South America rejoin the isthmus? So the isthmus was sort of finished by about three million years ago, but you see the exchange start happening a few million years before that. So it's recent, um, really. So pretty, maybe they were recent, yeah. Swimming across and invading North America. So on the Pliocene. Yeah. Could have been swimming or rafting between, you know, island connections and things like that. Well, let me ask you this, Emily. So the sloths begin to migrate north uh, around that time period. They never made it into the old world. They never, uh, they were only made it into North America, made it all the way up to the Yukon and to Alaska, but never across into Siberia or Asia, right? That was it? Yep, that's it. And how many uh, species did we have in North America in the Pleistocene? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, there's arguments about species, but you had, uh, I think, three right. different uh, families, basically. So you have okay. families. the, um, the Megalonychids, uh, which includes megalonics, which was actually described by Thomas Jefferson. That's You've right. You've got oh. the mylodontids, which have the armor in the skin. Wait, where did old Thomas find those bones? Was that from the Army Corps of Engineer discovery or something? Or You know, it's this beautiful paper written in, I think, 1799. And it was these specimens, they were from a cave in... Gosh. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. I maybe think Virginia, I but it might not have been Virginia. It might have been further west. Did they find them at the Big Bone Lick in Kentucky? Were they there at the Big Bone Lick? <sighs> I don't I don't know off the top well, of my well, head. Apparently, you know well, you know about this, right? I think Ray, they did. So... Well, it's, I've been, uh, I have a sister in Kentucky, and I've been right, to the Well, Big we'll bone fact lick. check that. Okay, I went down this big bony rabbit hole. The Bone Lick site in Kentucky Ray is going on about got its name from the Pleistocene megafauna fossils found there. Mammoths are believed to have been drawn to this location by a salt lick deposited around the sulfur springs there. Now back to the megalonic sloth bones Emily mentioned. 
1796, Colonel John Stewart sent Thomas Jefferson, then Vice President of the United States, some fossil bones, some leg bones, foot bones, including three large claws from a cave in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, not Kentucky. But it's really cool you brought up the bone lick site, Ray. I never knew about that. And you can go down your own giant sloth hole by visiting Emily's page at paleonerds.com. Check it out. But anyways, let's... You work at the tar pits now. We've gone way deep into into sloths, but uh, when did you land at the tar pits, and uh, how were you, how did you come to be touched by the tar? So you know, it was one of these kind of bizarre. Uh, circuitous routes but so once I finally decided that you know I was in fact a paleontologist and I went to graduate school um, I am I am you had to confess I, I think I am I gave uh, up I gave up um so I, I went to graduate school and I'd been working at that point I'd been working on uh this archaeological dig in southern Chile and I'd been uh I'd done some work in Ecuador a little bit I had a lot of colleagues down there and I knew I wanted to do some field work in South America and, and uh, my advisor at Berkeley uh, wanted to, you know, have a branch of the research program in South America. And so then I knew also that I wanted to do field work. I mean, the whole reason that I, I got into fields like, you know, paleontology and marine biology and stuff is because fun we want to be out there. We want to travel yeah. and work outside a bunch of months of the year. And so, um, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to work there. And I had been a couple of years earlier, I had been just traveling in Ecuador, uh, visiting friends. And I was in this little town, I'd got I had a friend there and would go scuba diving together periodically, he was into scuba diving as well. And I was a marine biologist, of course, at the time. And, uh, you know, one day, he and his wife and kids were like, Oh, we, you know, you like archaeology, too, we want to show you something. And they took me to this site on the Santa Elena Peninsula that was at the time being excavated by a team of archaeology students from the local university. And it was this tar pit and it had, there were no human remains in it. It was all giant ground sloth bones in this wow. tar pit. And, and I thought, oh my gosh, like I had no idea there were tar pits anywhere other than the La Brea tar pits. Uh, and so um, a, fast forward a couple of years and I'm in graduate school and I, I knew I wanted to do field work and I had seen this site and I thought, well, I wonder if anyone's doing anything at that site. And so I reached out, I was able to get in contact with the professor of, it was like archaeology and tourism at the local university. And, and I said, hey, you know, I'm interested in coming down and, and doing research at the site. And you know, they welcomed me down and they they had stopped excavating a couple of years before. And so I went down and I brought a team and I had different people come, um, you know, and, and sort of help out students, uh, undergraduates. You picked up and, where they left off, kind of? Sort of, yeah. And well, you know, and they had been excavating. There's very few paleontologists, uh, at least vertebrate paleontologists in Ecuador. And so they had been really kind of excavating with archaeological techniques and an archaeological focus. And they had, you know, excavated a lot of bones and, and used them to start this little museum at the uh, university, which they used for, you know, giving, giving tours to, uh, to school groups and drawing tourists and things like that. But nobody had ever actually done any paleontological research at the site. And so it was really kind of a wide open, wide open field, you know, and I went down my first year, uh, you know, we're digging, I was like, man, actually, 
I have no idea how to excavate in a tar pit. Like, this is a very <laughs> niche thing. And I thought that I know where I can find people who know how to excavate oh, in a tar pit. It's a messy business, yeah. So. Up in L.A. Up in L.A., right? And so I was I was yeah. at Berkeley, so it was just, you know, a few-hour train ride down to L.A. So I went, so, so after that first field season, I went down, you know, I made contact with the people at La Brea, and I said, hey, I've got a tar pit in South America. Like, does anyone can you help me out with like figuring, figuring out? And so I went down, they gave me some, you know, talked about the types of chemicals they use and the type of techniques they use. And they said, Hey, by the way, do you want any volunteers? Because we have, you know, all of these staff and volunteers. And of course, like they're all in it for the opportunity to work on paleontological digs. And I said, yeah, I'd love it. And so over like the next couple of years, I ended up having, I think like eight people connected to the Librea tar pits come down and help out at my site. And I mean, frankly, like I could not have done the research that I did without them. I mean, it was so valuable to have that perspective and expertise. I have a question about the uh, Santa Elena Peninsula in Ecuador, uh, that tar pit site. So apparently those bones, those animals didn't sink into the tar. There was no tar when they died because it was alluvial, like stream deposit. And then for some geological reason, the tar seeped in, which provided a, a great preservation. How does the matrix of bones down in Ecuador differ from the matrix you find up at La Brea? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that, um, again, when I started working there, I certainly didn't know there were tar pits anywhere else in the world other than La Brea. And, you know, it turns out there's there's a few. They're, they're pretty rare, but they're um, sort of northern, northern South America, the Caribbean, Southern California. And then um, there's actually a few that we're learning about in Asia now. So basically you have this, you need this confluence of, you need oil deposits and you need tectonic activity that allows that oil to make its way to the surface, right? It turns out even the La Brea tar pits, they're not all kind of this primary tar pit entrapment scenario that, that we think of as kind of the typical tar pit trap where you have, uh, you know, an animal walk in and sort of get stuck in the asphalt. There are even patches around the La Brea tar pits right right in our park in Los Angeles where it looks like there's this, you know, there was a stream channel deposit that then secondarily got infiltrated oh. by seeping asphalt. Um, so to answer your question about the bones, you know, um, a tar pit that forms primarily through entrapment has this very distinctive kind of jumbled bone context where you have you have a lot of bones that are sort of uh, sticking up vertically. You have this really wide range of bone of sizes of bones. You also get preservation of things like soft tissues of plant cellulose and insect chitin. You have a really high abundance of birds because birds will see these sort of puddles of asphalt, um, maybe with like a thin layer of water on top of them and uh, think it's just a, a pond to land in. Yes. Tons of birds. And even, you know, I mean, you can go out, you know, it sounds like you live in the Ojai area. You said, I mean, there are natural asphalt seeps in Ojai and you can... Are there? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, that are active today and you can... Um, in my neighborhood where? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so um, I know like, there's a whole uh, oil... Uh, there's a gigantic oil field just t five miles from my house. So like the road from Santa Paula to Ojai... Right. They're all yeah. along that road. Um, there's like oh, because oh, you can smell. On the side you can of the smell road. sulfur. I know there's a place yeah. where you smell sulfur. <gasps> yeah. Oh my and, goodness! And if you now go, you got me going. I guarantee don't walk you. Your dog there. Don't take Arthur there. Yeah. I guarantee you, you will find recently entrapped birds. 
Well, you know, I told uh, when we interviewed Reagan Dunn, my whole fossil moment of my entire life is going to the La Brea Tar Pits before there was a George C. Page Museum and seeing a robin stuck in the tar. And that's what seeing that robin just connected it for me. So let me ask you this, Emily, you are the director of the excavation site at La Brea. Does that mean you are teaching people how to dig in the tar? Um, not necessarily. I mean, the the staff, actually, all of our excavation staff predates me at the tar pits. Well, I'm just saying I'm a newbie. If I wanted to, come, if I wanted to volunteer and come, you would... I no, could we'd be... make you sort microfossils in that little window, <laughs> Ray. That's all you get to do. But there's got to be... Uh, this. Why is there always... Why are all the bodies... Uh, disarticulated why do you not get a perfectly preserved animal and then i'm wondering if you get plant material and all that why don't you have more like mummified creatures where you get like the entire creature and the hair and everything is that can happen? i answer that no let's uh, let's all right let's uh, can, the I can i guess can i guess you guess and then emily will all right. check you. the bones are jumbled because tar is a fluid it, and it moves over time and, and so that's why bones are jumbled you don't get articulation why don't you get mummies? Because in the actual tar are microbes. There are there are tarophiles. I don't know what you'd call them, but they don't allow for for organic preservation. Really, really. Okay. much right. much organic preservation. And how did I do? I'd, I'd say that's basically right, and I love the term tarophile. I plan to use it from here on out. Um, tarophile? Tarophile. Well, a bacteria that eats tar, that loves tar or lives in tar. tar. How about this? A tarophiliac, someone who loves tar. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. We're riffing here. Stop there. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so, so yeah. So basically, there is, you know, a tar pit. There's this image of the tar pits that's like the lake pit in front of our museum that has the statues of the mammoths in it. That is not a tar pit. And so we're always struggling against this perception in right. kind of popular culture that a tar pit is like a giant lake of quicksand that you step in and you like sink down until just like your hat's floating on the water. And it's not like that. That's actually <laughs> that lake is actually a 19th century commercial asphalt mine that was dug by the Hancock family who owned that ranch there where the fossils were found. Hancock Park. Which is now Hancock Park, right? But the asphalt, you know, is viscous. So the, the asphaltic puddles themselves that are trapping, you know, hundreds of thousands of plants and animals over millennia are really only a few inches thick of like liquid asphalt. And then all of the rest of that going down is asphalt saturated sediments. So you're not going to like sink into them in the way that it's often portrayed in sort of this well, sand-like manner. Yeah, get stuck yeah, and not be able to pull out? Because it is so sticky that even that like oh. six-inch puddle of asphalt, once you get three of your legs in there, you are not getting out. And they struggle and they fall down and then they get, you know, leaped on by a pack of direwolves and a lot of the direwolves get stuck and then, you know, the the vultures that come and a so... bunch of the vultures get stuck and then the bugs so come to eat the decomposing about... bodies and they get stuck. Oh. and Yeah, it's, it's this it's terrible so spiral. Yeah. Just animal after animal getting stuck to eat. They're going to eat, and they they jump on one animal, and they oh my goodness. Yeah, Kirk is uh, Kirk Johnson, the guy I've done a couple books with. You know, Mr. Smithsonian. He's described as like a giant popcorn ball of predators. You get one <laughs> stuck, and then you get another, and another, another. Let's talk about that ratio of predator prey there. What 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 is happening there? You get so many carnivores, it's crazy. What's what are the stats? How does it break down?
Yeah, it's, that's really um, one of the unique things about these types of sites. And that's something, you know, that that differentiates like a primary entrapment tar pit from something like the Santa Elena site, which is a secondary infiltration bone bed, is your carnivore-herbivore ratio. So, right. you know, a normal ecosystem and what you would find in sort of a normal bone bed deposit, like the vast majority of animals on the landscape are herbivores. So think about, you know, the one natural kind of like Pleistocene savanna style, you know, I'd say a, a natural Cenozoic ecosystem, terrestrial ecosystem that we still have would be like the African savanna where you have, you know, thousands of wildebeest and zebras and elephants and giraffes and rhinos and hippos and impalas. And then you've got like some lions and cheetahs, right? Like that's a natural ecosystem. What you have represented in a fossil site like the Librea tar pits is exactly the opposite, where you have um, way, way, way more carnivores than herbivores. And so our, our five most common large animals in order, we have our direwolves, saber-toothed cats, the smilodons, coyotes, uh, horses, and bison. And um, right, Where do uh, short-faced bears and camels and mastodons and ma mammoths fall? Yeah. So, I mean, we've got a fair number of those. And again, like we have more of the carnivores than you do. We actually have quite a few camels, um, especially in certain deposits. All those carnivores is not a representational percentage of right. the ecosystem. That's just right. because they all jumped on all those right. beautiful free lunches. And and the ones that we get the most of, the direwolves, saber-toothed cats, and coyotes, we think a big factor in that is that probably all three of those species were social like pack hunting animals. Ah. And so you have a whole group of them coming. Oh. That's why you maybe wouldn't get the short-faced bears. Right. So we have, I mean, uh. we have we have short-faced bears. Uh, we have quite a few of them. We have more short-faced bears than we have, say, black bears or grizzly bears, interestingly, but we don't have tons mm. of them, right? Um, and again, like we have horses and bices. There's grizzly bears? Uh, we do. We have grizzly bears at the tarpets. Wow. Do you know like black bears? We do. Um, we really? have, I think, at least uh, at least a couple. Not much. So but... Ursus horribilis is the grizzly, and the black bear is Ursus, Ursus uh, smoky bears. No, what Americanus. Is... Oh, Ursus. Oh, <laughs> hey, boo boo. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's one wow. of the only the one of the only sites in North America where you have all three of those bears. Wow! Wow! I didn't and know we that. Have and I've, been to the, I've been to the, uh, the George C. Page Museum a million times. I didn't even know about the other two bears. I got to say that we are the only state with three species of bears. So just saying, we have polar, black, and brown bears. So, well, that that is really cool. This, uh, but how many saber toothed cats and how many dire wolves do you need at the library? Of, do you keep, <laughs> What you do you keep, mean? Do you need? You mean to study? Well, how let, give me some or numbers. How many how, did they find? How many fossils, how many dire wolf skulls do you have in your, your inventory? So officially, I don't know about skulls in particular. Officially, we have more than 3,800 dire wolves. And I would say, you know, if we actually went through and did a proper, you know, updated right. MNI count, it's probably in the neighborhood of 5,000. Wow. Saber-toothed cats, uh, it's probably in the neighborhood of about 2,500. You what? know, and in contrast, we have like 37 mammoths. That's 5,000 sabers. <laughs> 
and broken yeah. sabers. Yeah. Actually, if you are if you ever are able to tour the back rooms, there are drawers and drawers and drawers full of sabers. Drawers and drawers full of. I know it's it seems a little like why are you, do you keep filling the warehouse up? But you can learn a lot by basically all of these these individuals, right? There's just so yeah. many of the individuals. Yeah. What kind of things can you extrapolate from that? Well, yeah, so that, I mean, that's why this has been such an important place, especially for people who study like carnivore evolution or carnivore biology, because you don't get, you know, this number of replicates at other types of paleontological sites. So, you know, um, some of the research we have going on, you know, just right now, we, we're looking at how did animals like the direwolves and the coyotes and the saber-toothed cats, how did they change both in terms of like kind of their size and shape and also in terms of their diet, what they were eating as we're going through different periods of climate change, because, you know, the La Brea Tar Pits, it covers this 50,000 year time interval, which is actually like probably the most important 50,000 years right. of Earth's history for understanding what we're going through today, right? Because that's covering like the last major episode of global warming as we're coming out of the Ice Age. It covers uh, the time when humans first arrive in the Americas and start you know, uh, spreading out and interacting with ecosystems during the uh, Killing Santa, everything. Santa, during the Santa Rosean <laughs> land mammal age, and then Santa uh, Rosean named by your team <laughs> exactly, and then and then the extinction of two thirds of the large animals on the North American continent. And so, you know, as uh, conservation biologists and ecologists today are asking questions about, oh, well, what are the long-term impacts on fauna going to be of things like climate change and human activities and defaunation or the loss of large animals from ecosystems? Like, this is the place that has those answers, right? This is where we can actually study that on kind of a fine-grained timescale because we have we have this entire time period covered. We have but how are you accurately dating? So and and it's all within the realm of radiocarbon dating, right? Like the limit of oh, radiocarbon okay. dating is about fifty thousand years. And uh, just wait, just real asphalt, quick, explain how that's done. That's tell me how that works. So you're studying the ratio of this particular isotope of carbon, a radioactive or unstable isotope of carbon, carbon fourteen, relative to to carbon twelve. And so we know the ratio of carbon fourteen to carbon twelve in the atmosphere has fluctuated in particular ways throughout time. And we actually get this from like tree ring studies and stuff. And so we take a piece of bone, we basically use chemical processes to distill that bone down into like just the carbon. And then we put it in an accelerator and we actually monitor the decay of those carbon-14 isotopes in real time. And so you can get very, very precise. Ex accelerator mass spectrometry. Wait. Accelerator mass spectrometry. Spectrometry. <laughs> I very good. It. Yeah. Yeah. And so so we can get with the accelerators, we can get super precise ages on these. Like you can get, you know, 35,250 plus or minus 25 years, you really? know, on some of these specimens. So we get really precise understanding of when these animals lived and died. Is there a key uh, of the last 50,000 years of some other dating of, of whether it be dendritic tree analysis or other types of organic that you definitely know that, uh, I guess with trees, can't you go back, is it to go back a certain amount of, you take one tree, look at those rings, yeah. and you match that to the next tree that's older, the next tree that's yeah. older. How far does that go back for accurate dating? 
So they keep being able to push it back. Um, and I don't know if a hundred, if at this point we're using all tree rings or if they're using, you know, some other proxies from, from ice cores and stuff, but, you know, they just like two months ago put out the most recent update of the like radiocarbon sort of conversion chart. And it goes back to like 55,000 years at this point, I think. Then that's using tree rings, which are smaller and larger based on climate and seasons and years. They're counting they're counting years. Wow. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you this, Emily. Uh, the big, well, the big question always is, did we do it? Did humans kill the megafauna? Was it climate change? Was it both? And you are, you really got a window on when humans show up in North America. You actually have one human from the tar pits, right? We do. I believe. Yep. Domestic dog, right? Yep, but the domestic dog's only like three thousand years old. So. Okay, so somebody lost their dog uh, three thousand years ago. But <laughs> you you can actually see when humans. Well, you know when humans show up in North America. Uh, but so what 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 are you able to discern? And I mean, you, I'm sure it's a it's hotly debated. But did you also studied in South America where you have a quaternary uh, database that says eighty percent loss of the uh, mammal fauna down there when humans show up. It's a smoking gun, it seems. We are the killer species. You know, I think there's, you need a higher resolution than that. So, you know, basically... You know, there's there's been these warring camps for like 60 years now. There's like, oh, you know, small bands of itinerant humans couldn't possibly have killed off all of these species. So it, it had to be climate. And then there's the other group that says, well, if you, you know, look at the continent, like they always die out sort of shortly after humans arrived. But, you know, based on actually a lot of the work we've done in South America and some of the work we're starting now at, at Rancho La Brea and sort of the North American continent, my strong sense based based on based on the work we've done and sort of compiling the work that that all these other scholars have done is that you really have to look at the regional interplay so you have we have clear evidence from certain areas so i mean you know published cases include like the andes the Yukon, uh, even like the Willamette Valley in Oregon, certain places where you clearly, Ireland is another one, right, where you clearly lose megafauna before any evidence of humans arriving in that region and clearly in concert with climate changes that would have Hmm. negatively impacted their... How big of a gap between the megafauna going bye-bye and humans arriving? It can be thousands of years, right? So like there are some places where like the megafauna are gone thousands of years before humans show up and during during like very clear uh vegetational turnover that that you would predict would would sort of impact their ability to live there and then you have other places regions um in, for instance in south america like the south american pampas where we have that giant ground sloth that appears to be butchered by humans we have evidence of like possibly up to you know at least a 4000 and maybe up to like a 7000 year overlap between humans and megafauna in that region so the picture that emerges is that you've got a situation happening where the populations of the megafauna are being fragmented and shrunk because of climate changes and then you have this weakened sort of more fragmented population into which comes a novel, very efficient predator, which is humans. A primate like us. A primate you that know, it's was so us. great. It's it's not cut and dried, but it just points to the idea that both ideas are true. 
Yeah, well, you know, what I'm learning really on this show as we talk to experts like Emily and, and others is that uh, there are so many uh, levels of understanding to come to that really the there's no simple answers. It's complex. Complexity. There... Nature, the world is complex. And um, yeah, wow. Are there any weird things you found in La Brea that we yeah, don't really know about? What's yeah. the weirdest thing? And is there are straight? Are there any conundrums or unanswered questions that, that keep you awake at night? Like, are there aliens? Are there, did you have you, Ray, have you found? I'm editing that out. I'm going to edit out that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Come on, leave it. At, is there a Bigfoot in there? Stop I it. did. I did get pulled into one of those like April Fool's Day like news oh. joke news articles a couple of years ago, um, which I felt a little bad about. Something about like lizard people. Um, <laughs> I would not say. I would. I would not say that uh, there is any. You know, I, I think kind of one of the outstanding mysteries right now is just um, like we have such a complex geology there that hasn't really been thoroughly investigated and really understanding kind of the the whole history of that site because we have so many different like the tar pits i mean there's more than a hundred of these asphaltic deposits and each of them is unique right and some of them capture this very like short period of time and some of them are you know 15,000 years of deposition and some of them are predominantly seem to be predominantly formed through like primary entrapment of plants and animals but some of them seem to be primarily formed from secondary asphaltic infiltration of stream deposits and so really kind of putting that picture together and saying okay like what how did this can we sort of do like a like a stop motion recreation of the you know 50,000 year development of Rancho La Brea you know the big mm. you know the big question that i really really want to find out from La Brea and i know that Reagan feels this way as well is what did it look like at the beginning of the Holocene, right? So what, because everybody focuses on the Pleistocene, the Ice Age and these iconic fauna, but what did the Los Angeles Basin, this biodiversity hotspot look like right after two thirds of the large mammals disappeared, right? Like what impacts did that loss have on the ecosystem? Well, it's gonna have bears and coyotes and deer and pretty much all the mammals that you find today. Well, is it? I mean, are they there right after <laughs> the extinction or did many more things get extirpated than we think? So, for instance, bison, right? Like bison's one of our five right. most common animals at the tar pits. They didn't make it across the extinction boundary, it doesn't look like, in Southern California. They survived elsewhere in North America, but they never made it back into Southern California. Is that, are there other species that maybe right. uh, got pushed out, but then came back and repopulated? Um, and when did they come back? You know, so the grizzly bears we have, um, the grizzly bears probably didn't show up until after the short-faced bears went extinct. Oh, so they exploited that niche. Quite possibly, yeah. And there were no grizzly bears during Smilodons, correct? Or Yeah, there were. I mean there were in North America, but but, but we not, don't not have evidence. Okay. We right. don't have evidence that they were in California. Um former postdoc of mine at the Tar Pit, she's been doing a lot of work on the bears in collaboration with this group at UC Santa Barbara that's looking at the plausibility of reintroducing grizzly bears to California. I mean, this is like 
you know, it's an iconic animal. It's on our state flag. It's on your flag, but, yeah. But there haven't been grizzly bears in California. I think that'll go down real well. But they're that, gone. That, that's going to go down real well in the suburbs of Los Angeles. Uh, you know, they might. Honey, keep don't the walk place. your dog tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we get them on our island from time to time. And they, yeah, they I, I have a question about the, the sites at La Brea. So, how many how many seeps you say there are that More you More than 100 of? with fossils. Is that in Hancock Park or is that underneath the May Company and underneath the uh, all these other stores that are built over that you'll never know now? Well, those are, those are they're in Hancock Park. So, so, our biggest recent discovery was when the art museum next door to us, LACMA, built a parking garage and they right. found 16 new tar pit deposits in the wow. parking wow. garage where they were digging and, and so how deep been... is the deepest deposit that you've been able to excavate or drill down and core yeah so i think the the deepest ones they found went down to about 30 feet below ground really? level that's it interesting So actually, some of the uh, some of the creatures that uh, people love there, Zed, the giant Colombian mammoth, is is that was recent. How recently was that discovered? So he's one. He was um, one of those sixteen deposits that they found wow. in the parking garage. Oh, so that so was about right thirteen years ago. Yeah, and Zed is one example. Um, he was not trapped in a tar pit, right? Like he died, and his body was washed into a stream channel and buried, oh, and okay. then secondarily preserved by seeping asphalt. And so that's a very interesting deposit for us. Yeah, he's such an iconic animal. The mount is so cool. Those those curved tusks spectacular and then but pretty much all around the la area wherever they dig uh they're gonna run into fossils and uh hayden uh the mm -hmm. the baby metro mammoth is a recent not found at la brea but it's gonna be at your museum well it will yeah we'll go to i don't know about this guy so they're expanding the subway you know finally in los angeles so we can have a a good big city mass transit oh, right, system right, right. and I um you know as ray said like so the la basin is basically one giant alluvial fan right so the whole basin was under the ocean until about a hundred thousand years ago and then it emerged from the ocean but you get you know every year and i mean you see this in sort of the really tragic in modern day right like you get the Much horrendous lights. you get the forest fires in the fall right that burn off all the vegetation and then you get the rains and the mudslides in the winter because there's no longer anything holding that vegetation in well, and john so, mcphee wrote about it yep. he in his book control of nature he yes. wrote that the san bernardino mountains it's the san gabriel mountains but they're right next door so i was close have the most erosion and mass wasting of any mountain range on the planet. More material comes off these mountains than anywhere else. And it's because of the fire flood cycle. Yeah, which is, you know, I mean, it's 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 horrible, uh, you know, for a lot of people when you live there. living here. <laughs> but it's terrific for paleontologists, right? Because it means we have this incredibly high deposition rate for quaternary fauna. Wow. And and so everywhere you dig, you find fossils and they're generally, you know, they're not necessarily as well preserved as we get in asphalt at the tar pits and you don't get um, sort of these other types of tissues. But it's great for finding, you know, giant sloths and mammoths. And so, yeah, Hayden was one that was found sort of two metro stops down from where ours will be. <laughs> and uh, and it's this young mammoth that's got both the tusks and uh, oh. the mitigation company that's in charge of 
kind of preserving fossils from that project. They had st- their staff preparing Hayden on view in our fossil lab so that the public could come enjoy it. And then oh. once that project's completed, the Natural History Museum will most likely be the institution that will take all of those fossils. I'm just wondering, too, there's a lot of mitigation. Uh, there's salvage paleontology that happens all over Southern California. But the people are doing the right thing, right? And those go to a warehouse or go to a museum or, or the people approach you. How does that work? Yeah, so California law, CEQA, California is the strongest paleontological mitigation laws in the country. So basically, anywhere you dig um, that's, you know, a public project or on public lands, anything that's found has to be protected. And so... um, you know, it's a great place actually for people uh, with paleontological degrees because there's lots of professional work for paleontologists outside of academia. And yeah, it means we have this incredible record of our history uh, from between, you know, the really great preservation from the high sedimentation rate and the asphaltic deposits that we get around Southern California, and then the requirement that when those fossils are encountered, they have to be protected and stored in perpetuity in institutions um, and available for study by by scientists like me. I mean, it's just an incredible resource. Um, and the fact that, you know, the LA Basin is a biodiversity hotspot is really, you know, it's, it's really valuable for understanding the deeper time natural history and biodiversity of that region in terms of understanding where it might be going as we go through this next episode of climate changes. So, Emily, we ask all of our guests this question, or I get to ask this question, if you could time travel, and you could only time travel back in time, what time period would you go to and what would you want to see? You can get in the old time machine, go anywhere, see anything. Oh, my gosh. Nobody Uh, prepped you for this, huh? We're putting you right on the spot here. (laughs) I mean, I would love to go to the Pleistocene. I've spent my whole, you know, professional life in the Pleistocene. So, obviously, uh, that would be great. I'd also love to go to, like... But you hesitated. You hesitated. You really are thinking of some some other time. I'd love to go to the Cambrian, if I could bring my scuba gear. Uh, Ah. The Burgess Shale. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've heard many many of our guests have said the Cambrian, they want to go back and uh, snorkel at the Burgess Shale. Because nothing's going like. to eat you then. But but uh, what would you want to see in the Pleistocene if you were uh, if you were looking around in L.A. Uh, oh, those many I'd years I'd want to ago. see a giant sloth. <laughs> <laughs> what species? Oh, any of them. Any because so here's, here's the thing. Oh, well, I mean, I'd love to see Arimatherium because I did my whole Ph.D. on an Arimatherium dominant site. And what's uh, the Latin name, the full Latin name? Arimatherium laurelardi. Okay. I have no idea why I asked her what the Latin name was like. I had any idea. All I heard was laurel and hardy. And uh, what is th- those are the South American ones that got really big, right? Yeah, they got, but they made it up into North America too. So I said something inaccurate. I think, you know, at the beginning of the hour, I said there were three families of giant sloths. There are actually four in the Pleistocene of North America because okay. the the um, the megatherids make it up sort of into the Gulf Coast in Florida. That's right. So what would you want to see your Arimatherium? What, what do you want to see about it? What are you curious about? You know, I published a paper about a year ago based on the Santa Elena locality arguing that certain species of giant sloths were probably social and probably traveled in groups. Hmm. Family groups or social groups? 
Well, I don't have evidence to say whether yeah. what degree of relatedness they had, but you know, you have a Groups number works. You have a number of sites where you find large numbers of particular species of ground sloths together, usually in some sort of aquatic setting. Um, so I had this idea that like maybe they were kind of like hippopotamuses that, uh, you know, they would uh, kind of spend time, you know, in large numbers in these wallows. And, you know, as sometimes happens periodically, they would, uh, you know, there'd be either some sort of natural disaster or a disease would come through, um, you know, and, and they die. I'd, I'd love to see. Yeah, I'd love to see a group of giant sloths because here, here's the thing. Like people ask me well, why giant sloths. But the, but the thing yeah, is, yeah. you know, today. For these Ice Age, and we're so close to the Ice Age, right? I mean, as a friend of mine used to say, we just missed all the cool stuff, right? Like, it, we're so close. <laughs> and most of the species that we have at, say, the La Brea Tar Pits, there are analogs of those species somewhere in the world today, right? Like, we still have large cats. We still have elephants. We still have wild horses. We still have... Um, you can touch camels, them. like somewhere in the world, these animals exist, but there is nothing in the world that is even kind of like a giant ground sloth. Well, what about a tree sloth? Tree sloth they're is tiny. They, I mean, they're separated by you know many many millions of years of of evolution, but but they're also they're not analogous, right? Like something that right. you know hangs upside down in trees and doesn't move all day is so different right. from something that may have you know lived and in the herds. size of an elephant. And walked across the landscape and had armor in its skin. And, yeah, you know, I would I love to you. see them. Uh, glyptodonts, too. I would love to see a glyptodont. Yeah. To refresh your memory, a glyptodon was like a tank. It was a heavily armored mammal, relative of the armadillos. Kind of looked like them. That lived during the Pleistocene epoch. It was roughly the same size and weight as a Volkswagen Beetle. Remember those cars? There's the pompatheres and the glyptodonts. They're in, yeah, they're in the same order, but they're not technically in the armadillo family. I ask most of our guests this in some form of this question. Uh, there's a social media problem because people are reposting opinion as fact without bothering to check sources. So as a scientist, what advice can you give us to help change the way people are absorbing information on social media, which is so often somebody's opinion and not fact? What advice can you give us to check our sources and how do we do that? I think if, if something sounds implausible, like every, everybody should know how to fact check things like, and, and not be too lazy to do it right? Like find, Learn you know, how to Google. Yeah. Don't, I mean, you can't like anybody can make something up and put it on the internet, right? Like I can say giant invisible dinosaurs came and, you know, ate or Pizzagate. Right? <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, you know, ate all the ballots or something like that. But, but like <laughs> you, you gotta know the difference between making something up and putting it in some non peer reviewed, non fact check venue and, and actually like legitimate news sources, you know, and usually you can go back to the original information somehow, like you can get a copy of the scientific study of it's a science piece, you can get a copy of court documents of it's, uh, you know, something about, about a legal, a legal story, you can find original, you know, video taken by like a mainstream news source if it's about something someone said, like, it's not that hard. Um, you know, I personally... That's a great answer. No, learn how to proper fact check. That's, yeah, and that's this is something, answer. I mean, students, when I was growing up, we were taught how to go and research information. And, you know, I mean, we didn't have the benefit of, of the internet 
uh, at the time. But we had but Dewey students, Decimal. Exactly. But students today, I mean, like everybody, it is the single most important tool you have for A, participating in a democracy or B, just like surviving in the world is being able to discern fiction from reality. And if people aren't being taught to think, A, think critically and know when you probably should go and fact check something and B, how to do that, you have a huge problem of impending societal breakdown. Great answer. You know, actually, one thing I was just thinking that um, science is messy. You know, science is uh, there's controversy within science. There's differing camps of uh, belief. How do you fight anti-science when they say, well, look, scientists don't agree? I say that, you know, there are certain things that the like overwhelming majority of scientists unequivocally agree on and there are certain areas where there are debate when the petroleum companies pay a scientist to say that climate change is is something to doubt that's not scientists agreeing and that's sadly what i was told by my neighbors who said oh yeah well scientists don't agree but you if you can go to say like the american geophysical union website and you can see a statement by you know thousands of geoscientists around the world saying you know climate change is real it is caused by these causes there is no appreciable dissent to this within the scientific community whatsoever right so you can go to the scientific organizations right. Right. And you could I don't know about what relationship you have with your neighbors, but you could direct them to this and say, look, people who are actually climate scientists, there is no appreciable debate. Emily, I'm community. sorry, but uh, that that's fake news. <laughs> there we go. There Here we, we go. go. All right. <laughs> Can I just sneak in a couple last quick questions? Sure. Do you know about the Megatherium Club? I do know about the Megatherium Club. You ever Club. heard of the Megatherium? Yes. I want to bring it back. Can you tell David I, what the Megatherium Club oh, is? Because I, I want to do the t-shirts. I completely agree. Yes. Well, I mean, wasn't it at the Smithsonian or was it at the AMNH? I thought it was yeah, at the I, Smithsonian. I've been working on. I've been working on Kirk for a long Kirk, time. Like, by the way, Kirk is, you know, like somehow I had just started at La Brea. It was like with my my first two months on the job, and um, all of the directors of the major natural history museums were out for um for a, a meeting days. no no for for a meeting uh you know in their directorial yield capacity right. and and Kirk was talking to me and I mean I was brand new on the job but somehow he knew that I worked on a Ethereum and he is like you know the biggest <laughs> fan of giant ground sauce so I can't oh, imagine he that he would not be supportive of bringing so back what, the what Ethereum club, club? Well, the Megatherium Club was uh, actually a bunch of Smithsonian guys in the 18 mid 1800s it was kind of a guy's drinking club in a way, uh, but I think it could be expanded. And basically, they were a group that uh, had a lot of fun uh, doing science, and uh, they called themselves the Megatherium Club, right? Why? Something like that. Why? Why the Megatherium? But yeah. Because for all the reasons that I just said about yeah, how giant slots cool. are the, oh, the coolest, cool. most okay. mysterious. They're it. big and they're... Bizarre. They're big and cool, and they, they had fossils of them. And actually, if you do go to the uh, Deep Time Hall in the Smithsonian that just opened, there's the Arimatherium. There's a couple of them, right? I think they're actually large, and they're greeting you as you come in. And my last question, isn't there a ghost at the L.A. County Museum, or is it at the La Brea Tar Pits, the ghost of uh, someone there? Do you know about this story? 
I don't know of any apocryphal ghosts. I I know okay. certainly there are people, I would say probably at all museums that feel that they have seen ghosts. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, you're, okay. you're 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 assuming ghosts are real, Ray? Well, I don't know. There's some good ghosts. Well, I could just say that museum. with the trillions of gigabytes of photos and videos that have been taken since the invention of the smartphone in 2007, and not one image has surfaced yet. Well, I, I thought know. they didn't show up on film, right? Oh, Isn't that's that right. That's <laughs> they don't show up in pixels. <laughs> it's, hey, it's, so, hey. it's so easy. Like, if you just discount the need for empirical evidence, it, you can argue absolutely anything. <laughs> anything. Yeah. Back to my invisible dinosaurs, yeah. right? Like, there are invisible yeah. dinosaurs that the tar pits try to prove sure. wrong. <gasps> there are? Just... Wow. I heard it here. All right, no, we're making that. Okay, well, look, we have to do this again because I have a thousand more questions, Emily. This has been so much fun and so oh, great. So fun. I've thank learned you so, so much. much. Yeah, Emily, thank you sincerely. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to returning to normal life and getting down to the uh, tar pits and meeting you in person. But thank you for joining a ventriloquist and an artist today on Paleo Nerds. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure and a great honor. Pretty fun as always, man. Learned yeah. so much. Learned a lot. You know? Yeah, I'm learning so much more about the La Brea Tar Pits, you know, this fossil site I visited my entire life. It's uh, just so great. I didn't realize there were so many tar seeps. Yeah, around the world. And then, uh, you know. Uh, no, I mean, just at La Brea. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, also learning that it's not just a simple answer, is it? It wasn't that humans killed off the megafauna. There was climate change. It was a nuanced argument. You know, there's a lot of yeah. data there to still be uh, parsed out. But uh, yeah, she was fascinating. She was brilliant. I had no idea she was actually one of the co-authors of the paper on uh, the new North American land mammal ages. And she was talking about the one, uh, the Santa Rosean, right? Yeah. And then there's the St. Augustinian age, which is 491 years ago. And that's marked what? by, that is the very latest Wait, one. That's, we talked about that with Dr. Bob Bacher. Um, remember St. Augustine is the one who didn't said, don't take the Bible literally. Well, yeah, that has kind nothing. Of? Well, there's a town in Florida where the yeah, Spanish St. Augustine. St. Augustine. Yeah. So there's an age. I've been there. There's an age, and I've been there. I have a brother who lives right near there. Isn't that there. the first, the first fort? Yeah, and that's where the Spaniards first brought horses back to North America. Oh. Hence, Wait a that's, minute! That's no, the land. No, no, that's, no, Wait, no, no, no. Uh, Dude, Aztec Cortez brought them. No, 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 no. Really? Let horses come back to North America 491 years ago, and when they come back to North America. They are physiologically different. You can actually tell right. there was this gap. Horses so left you're saying North that's America. Before... They went extinct when the bison came in, as we learned. Then they come back to North America and 491 years ago with the Spanish. And that is the land mammal age that you Got can it. actually now, I understand at. that. But didn't Cortez bring them to... The, he, he, he had them when he arrived in Mexico and, and slaughtered the Aztecs. Yeah, well, he let's had horses get, our, then. get our history books out. Okay. These are North American land mammal ages. Oh, you're doing this yeah. as we speak, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to do it right now. Uh -huh. So how many years ago? 491 years ago. Cortez, uh, Mexico. 
Let's see here. Uh, I guess who I got? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> Give up on the Google. If I'm wrong, you can uh, correct me later, all right? In a... Hernan Cortez. Uh, he arrived uh, last September. <laughs> no. Um, 1521, 499 years ago. What does that mean, well, the, Ray? The St. Augustinian, that paper came out earlier, dude. I stand behind it. Because okay. I went and looked at this up in the meantime. Right, but right. That's the okay, new well, North we'll, we'll American land look. mammal age. There'll be yeah. controversy around this, won't there? What Dave and I are arguing about is the date that horses were introduced back into North America. You may recall that horses evolved in North America during the Eocene and later migrated to Europe and Eurasia only to die out here, along with lots of other megafauna during the late Pleistocene. But thousands of years later, they were brought back to the Americas by Europeans. Columbus brought them to the Virgin Islands in 1493. Then 26 years later in 1519, Cortez used 16 of them in his genocidal bloody campaign against the Aztecs. Coronado also brought horses to the continent in 1540. In 1565, Spanish colonizers established a settlement in Florida and named it St. Augustine. North American land mammal ages, or NALMA for short, are named after locations that have documented datable breeding assemblages of animals. The St. Augustinian NALMA age that Emily and her colleagues named refers to the group of mammals brought by the settlers to Florida, including not only horses, but goats, pigs, cows, cats, and rats. These mammals established populations that are still living there today. The horses brought to Florida were measurably different from their Pleistocene ancestors. So maybe Dave and I are both sort of right. And that is the name of an age. That is so cool. Right, it's a land mammal age. Which is that is the most recent your... age then? Oh, well, we have yes. the Anthropocene. What is that called? Well, is that an that's era? That's still not official yet. That's, uh, right. But is that an era or not... an age? It'll be an epoch. An epoch. <laughs> An epic. <laughs> It'll be epic. Uh, All right. Epoch. And on that note. Yeah, I've come around to saying epoch, but it still feels weird. But hey, Dave, fun as always. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we accumulate knowledge. And you know, knowledge is power, man. That's right. Knowledge is power. If you have any paleontologists, scientists, or naturalists you'd like us to interview or any particular subject. Yeah. Yeah, if there's a topic you want. Yeah, yeah. we'd love to hear from you. Also, we'd love you to review and rate us on iTunes. So uh, please tell us what you think. Okay. And hopefully it's good things. I hope, man. We'll take whatever. We'll take and, whatever. Uh, We're grown Ray, men. Ray, are you a paleo nerd? I'm a grown man who still loves dinosaurs. So yes, I'm indeed a paleo nerd. Signing off from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska. It's Raymond Troll. And I'm signing off from beautiful Ojai, California. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Paleo